From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. We're on the heels of Black History Month, so we caught up with two people who were instrumental in putting together a book full of stories about notable Black Philadelphians. It's called Blam! Black Lives Have Always Mattered. Uh, racism is no little thing, and in order to destroy it, you have to educate it out. Charity Howard's newsmaker this week is the owner of West Philly staple Hakeem's Bookstore. We'll learn about what honor is being bestowed upon this area treasure. He didn't start out because he was the first or because he was trying to be different. He just wanted to share the knowledge. Antoinette Lee's Philly Rising Changemaker is a Philadelphia-based educator and children's book author. This is our family, like in a book. It was so emotional to them. All of that is straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Well, we're coming up on Black History Month, and you will be sure to hear snippets and stories of notable African Americans and their impact on the nation and the world. Of course, here on Bridging Philly, any day is a good day to brush up on Black history because it is American history. Joining me today, two people who were instrumental in writing the book Blam! Black Lives have always mattered. Dr. Diane Turner is director and curator of the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Collection at Temple University Libraries. She co-wrote the book's introduction. Eric Battle is art director and illustrator for BLAM. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Now, BLAM is a graphic novel. Now, this was skillfully compiled as it profiles 14 historic black Philadelphians. First, tell me about Charles L. Bloxon and the collection at Temple University, Dr. Turner. Okay, Charles Bloxon is curator emeritus. He started collecting back in 1943, and he was in a class, and he asked the teacher what contributions had Negroes made in the context of the times. And he says his teacher wasn't a malice person, but she said to him, Charles, Negroes have no history and it's their place to serve whites. Uh, Luckily for him, uh, his father was a member of the NAACP, so they got the Crisis Magazine, and also the black newspapers, and of course, uh, Philadelphia Tribune is one of the oldest, uh, founded in 1884. So whenever he got any type of allowance or monetary gifts, he started going out and collecting Anything written that had Egyptian, colored, Negro, Ethiopian, Jamaican, Afro-Cuban, Afro-Brazilian, anything that related to people of African descent. And so um, over time, uh, by uh, 1973, he had written books about black genealogy, about blacks in Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the prize books that he found was a book on the Underground Railroad. Ironically, he looks in the book and finds one of his relatives listed in there, Jacob Bloxon, who escaped from the eastern shores of Maryland, came through Philadelphia, and went up to Canada. So Mr. Bloxon became well-known and an advocate for uh, making uh, the Underground Railroad a national treasure. Uh, But in 1973, a group of scholars from Temple, uh, headed by Dr. Lawrence Reddick, who went on to become uh, the director of the Schomburg, visited his home and asked him, appealed to him to bring his collection to Temple. It took him 10 years to think about it. He decided to come to Temple because 
temple uh, focused on diversity, and it was in the heart of an African-American community. And he wanted everyone to have access to uh, this history because, as you said, African-American history is American history. So in 1983, he brought 20,000 items to Temple. Today, we have over 700,000 items and growing. Um, one highlight with Mr. Bloxon was that um, Merle Wilkins, who was the great-granddaughter of Harriet Tubman, bequeathed him 39 items, personal items of Harriet Tubman. So if you go to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, in D.C., uh, prominently displayed as one of the items that he donated, which is the shawl that Queen Victoria gave to Harriet Tubman. Wow. So in 1983, he brought 20,000 items to Temple. Today, we have over 700,000 items and growing. Um, but Mr. Bloxham was a real inspiration uh, for this book. You know, uh, I was fortunate when I was working on my doctorate in the history department at Temple, I was his graduate assistant. And so I call him one of my major mentors. Wow. Now, the book was originally meant to be an educational tool as it was distributed to many schools, of course. But it's safe to say that it has a wider appeal, yes? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, really, um, we were hoping that it would appeal to everyone, but we specifically wanted uh, young people to understand this history. Yeah. And so we ended up donating 5,000 copies to the school district of Philadelphia, uh, thanks to Pew. So when, when I was approached by Dr. Turner to, to, uh, be art, to art direct the book, uh, the vision that I had for it was, it was for it to be more than a textbook, more than a graphic novel. So, you know, combining all of those elements and also I wanted it to be an art, uh, an art book. Yeah. Uh, like for art collectors and people who collect comic books. Um, so like some of the some of the artists that are featured in the book, um, we have Dwayne Turner. He's he's a long time uh, legend in the comic book industry. So to have him participate in, in creating some of the imagery for the book, uh, to me, makes it uh, instant collector's item. I think that the illustrations in this book really bring to life the people that are written about in the book. And, you know, the scenarios that are shown really brings you into those different experiences. And I'm thinking about the particular one with Marian Anderson, when she learned that she was not allowed to sing at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., but she ended up performing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And that conversation, the image of the conversation between Eleanor Roosevelt and Marian Anderson, you kind of feel like you were there and you can imagine how that conversation went. Yes. Yeah. That, that particular profile was illustrated by illustrator Nancy DeVard. And um, when, I, when, I, when I got the list of individuals that we were going to be profiling, um, I knew there were certain profiles that I knew I wanted certain illustrators to to tackle. And Nancy DeVard, I specifically wanted her to illustrate uh, Marian Anderson's profile because she gave every panel and every page such a sense of majesty mm -hmm. and um, just, to me, her every page gl just glows. And that's, I knew that she, she was perfect for, for that particular profile. Yeah. 
You're listening to Bridging Philly. I'm Raquel Williams. We're talking to Eric Battle and Dr. Diane Turner about their book, Blam! Black Lives Have Always Mattered. Notables in this book include W.E.B. Du Bois, John Mosley, Cecil B. Moore, Christopher Perry. Are there any stories that pop out, any surprises while doing the research, especially the families? I'm assuming the families were instrumental in helping to bring these stories to life. Uh, well, we were really excited uh, because... Uh, we um, have a, a strong connection, the Bloxham Collection, into the community. In fact, I tell everyone that um, the Bloxham Collection is probably the best community relations piece at Temple. And so uh, when we decided to profile um, those that got selected were uh, Frederick Messiah, uh, Cecil B. Moore, and Dr. Walter Lomax, and so we reached out to their families, and um, in fact, um, Eric had um, oftentimes with the artists, he would contact us and see if we had any images of the individuals. And so the families were really, really helpful. But um, in the case of um, a Dr. Walter P. Lomax, his wife, uh, Beverly Lomax, uh, she had images, and his uh, six children were involved, too. Mm -hmm. And so even in terms of the stories, we wanted them to be legitimate. So before they were actually printed, we made sure the families agreed with it because we wanted them to uh, be stakeholders. And then we had, um, uh, and Dr. Lomax, of course, he was uh, a physician, a businessman, and a philanthropist, mm -hmm. and he founded WRD, um, uh, black radio station here in Philadelphia. Uh, Louis uh, Messiah, um, uh, who's um, uh, founded Scribe, and his sister, Judge Frederica Messiah Jackson, they and and his and his brother, who was out of town, Alan, they were instrumental in giving us materials related to their father, who was an engineer, and you know, basically, he was a pioneer in reinforced concrete. Uh, and had done a lot in the city. And then you had uh, Cecil B. Moore, and we had a contact with uh, Cecily, uh, Cecil B. Moore's uh, daughter and his other daughter, and also the Cecil B. Moore Freedom fi Fighters, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Karen Asper-Jordan. And um, I was really excited that Cecil B. Moore got selected because he was a Montfort Point Marine. And my dad was also a Montfort Point Marine, and they were the first African Americans to serve in the Marine Corps during World War II. And they were treated very poorly. They had to build their own camp. That's why they were called the uh, Montfort Point Marines. But um, uh, mm. uh, what he learned there uh, in the Marines, he took with him to go on to get a law degree from Temple and uh, become president of the NAACP in Philadelphia and see that uh, places were integrated because um, African-Americans weren't able to get jobs um, in a number of places in Philadelphia. And he was also instrumental in uh, the long road to desegregate Girard College came under his watch. So uh, it was uh -huh. really exciting. And, and the families, you know, just to see the glow on their faces, you know, it was well worth it. Yeah, yeah. I understand that this is the first book of its kind to highlight 
uh, historic black Philadelphians all in one book. And I'm wondering, you know, how important is it for the kids in Philadelphia to see a book like this, to see people that look like them reflected in this book and knowing that, you know, these are people that are from the area, the same place that they're from? It's incredible, incredibly important because um, in in putting the book together and and doing some of the research of of individuals like Cecil B. Moore and Alan Locke, um, it made me realize, like as a child, I, I attended Alan Locke grade school as a pre, as, for preschool, and uh, at one point I lived on Cecil B. Moore Avenue. So, but. Until I started working on this book and having to do research of, you know, of these individuals, those were just names. It was just a name of a school, a name of a street, you know. So looking, like listening to, finding video of Cecil B. Moore and like hearing his voice, um, you know, he was such a commanding person. You know, he had, he had a, he had an energy about him that um, it helped to me, it helped inform some of the visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's it's important for, for, for kids to be able to read these stories and hopefully have them connect the names to places and um, other other events around the city. And again, just just learning a richer history of where they live. Yeah. In about a minute that we have left, I have to ask you, because this is relevant, um, what's your take on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's decision to not allow the AP course in African-American studies to be taught in schools? I know a minute is is a little bit of time, but I just had to ask you this. What, what's your take on that? To me, it's all based on fear. His decision is based on fear. And it's like, why would you not want people to know the truth. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are you trying to hide? It's, it's, it's evil. It's just evil. Yeah. Uh, as a historian, uh, it's not new, I, should I say that, because when um, uh, Carter G. Woodson's book came out, The Negro in Our History, his book was banned out in the Midwest. We did an exhibit, and there was an article I found in the Philadelphia Tribune Uh, But I think, you know, Elizabeth Wilkerson says it best in her book, Cast. We look at the racism, but, you know, early on, there's a caste system in American society. So when you're viewing people at the bottom, you don't believe that, you know, they're worthy of telling their stories. Mm -hmm. And um, I would agree with um, Eric that it is very wicked. And I Mm -hmm. don't think that it's going to last like that. Okay. All right. So I understand that it is fear, but knowledge is power. So why do we want people to have power? Uh, because uh, once you know the truth, uh, the truth will set you free. And um, uh, I'm going to paraphrase what uh, Nanny Burroughs once said. She said, uh, racism is no little thing. It's in the very fabric of our country. And in order to destroy it, you have to educate it out. We've been talking with Eric Battle and Dr. Diane Turner about blam. Blam, of course, very intentional. It's a loud noise. It uh, gets your attention. It has double meaning, of course, as black lives have always mattered. Thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. 
Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hakeem's Bookstore is a well-known staple in West Philadelphia, and as Sharadee Howard tells us, the store is being honored with a Pennsylvania historical marker as the first and oldest African-American bookstore in the area. Here's more on our Newsmaker of the Week. This week, our newsmaker is Hakeem's Bookstore, run by Yvonne Blake, owner of Hakeem's Bookstore and the daughter of Dawood Hakeem, who opened the store in 1959 along 52nd Street in West Philly. And since the day it opened its doors, the bookstore's been a backdrop to social justice movements and really just a safe space for culturally driven conversations. And now, after six decades, it's getting its just due. A Pennsylvania historical marker for being not only the first, but being the oldest Black-owned bookstore in Philly. Yvonne, you said keeping this bookstore alive, you're keeping a promise you made to your father. Yes, I am very proud to have this marker to honor my father, and I just wish he were here to see it. My father passed away in 1997, and I've been pretty much running the store since then. We made a promise to him to try to keep the store open, you know, as long as we could once we knew that, you know, he was going to pass. He started this bookstore in 1959 after he read some books by the historian J.A. Rogers, and he became very engrossed in learning about African-American history. And he became also enamored with the idea that we that our history didn't start with slavery. And really, at the time, no one was getting this information, especially in schools. And that's what piqued his interest, right? This was nothing that was taught to anybody in school and in some cases is still not being taught or people are fighting not to teach our true history. Once he became familiar with the history of Africa and Egypt and, and, and the kings and queens and, and just the, the illustrious history that we had, he wanted to share that knowledge with everyone else. So that started him with his store and he started out selling books out of the trunk of his car. And doing like vending events, like vendors are very popular now, but he would set up a table at different events. And uh, that's how he started selling books until he was able to first open his first brick and mortar store. So this was his dream. It was his dream, but I don't think it started out as a dream. I think it just started out as him wanting to share knowledge. He was always wanting to learn. He always impressed upon upon his children the importance of reading and knowledge of self. And he just wanted to share that with people. And then somehow it became something bigger. It became something much bigger because, I mean, when he started out, he didn't start out because he was the first or because he was trying to be different. He just wanted to share the knowledge. And he shared this with the entire family. I'm looking around and you have generation upon generation here. Yes. And it's it's inspiring. Yes. He would bring me to the store when I was 9, 10, 11 years old. And I was like, well, why is my father selling these books that nobody wants to buy? Because in the late 50s and early 60s, we didn't have customers. And we used to spend like afternoons just sitting outside the bookstore And he taught me how to play chess. It hadn't caught on yet that this was something that we should be doing. And he got a lot of flack from family and friends. You know, why are you selling those books that nobody wants to read? And it didn't deter him. He stayed with what he wanted to do and the fact that this knowledge needed to be out there. He was ahead of the curve in such a way that now we can look back and say, wow, critical race theory, all these things that we're fighting for Mm -hmm. to keep this knowledge in our children's hands. He was back there making sure there was a foundation. Yes, he was. And at the time that he was doing everything that he was doing, I didn't even realize how important it was because my father was trying to teach me things that I wasn't being taught in school. And back then in the 60s and early 70s, if you didn't learn it in school, it didn't happen. 
You know, I had no books that told me any black history. I was an adult before I learned about Ruby Bridges or even about Black Wall Street. Some people are just now learning about Black Wall Street. I talked to somebody the other day that never heard of Paul Robeson. I mean, this is insane. <laughs> this is insane. And some would argue this is also by design. Your father was one of those people. Yes, so he's trying yes. to deconstruct that design. Yes. And I'm just so grateful. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just elated that he's finally getting recognition for all his hard work and determination. And your dad, he was really in the thick of it. There was even an FBI surveillance situation. Now, what was that all about? In the early 70s, they were investigating not just his store, but other African-American bookstores that were preaching uh, Black power and Black independence. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover led that little group. (laughs) And uh, they actually used to stand across the street from the store or send people into the store because they thought we were involved in some kind of subversive activities. I do remember my mom, uh, we grew up on 54th and Chestnut, so mm-hmm. my mom was here the whole time, and my grandmother, and I remember them speaking about the police force at the time and not being able to go to certain parts of the city, but specifically not being able to go to Black-owned establishments because of surveillance. And see, and this is something I did not know. I did not know this. I didn't know about the FBI until after my father passed. Somebody brought it to my attention because they finally released the files and they sent me copies where I saw that they followed him to meetings. They were writing down his tag number, you know, and the tag numbers of people that were at these meetings. And he was aware of what they were doing. And uh, from what they tell me, he used to laugh. And he said, instead of them coming in the bookstore and trying to learn something, they're out here taking pictures, trying to say we're doing something wrong. And it's going on now. It has changed somewhat, but there are still the powers that be to still want to keep us oppressed and uneducated. That's why once I got into the store and got the support from people and saw everything that he was doing, I knew that that's what I needed to do. And plus, it was like his deathbed promise. You know, he was so worried about the store. He, he, he got sick and he died of cancer. So at some point when we realized he wasn't coming back, I never thought that, that I would have to do this because I had a full-time job at the time. And I didn't retire from that job until 2013. So you were... Double timing it. I was double timing it, yes. I had family members to help me. There was a time when we were only open two days a week. We were making no money. I was, you know, uh, supporting the store, you know, because thank God I had a job. (laughs) But we would have been gone a long time ago. But, you know, I guess it's just meant for us to be here. (laughs) And it's also because of the community. And you have a lot of support that's almost turned into family. You have a gentleman here who's helping you out in the store, but he's almost like a son to you. This is my volunteer, Christopher Arnold, who saw a newspaper article about the store. And he said he's, well, let him tell you, he's he's from Philadelphia and he didn't even know the store was here. All right, Chris. So tell me, what brought you here? Doing community work in Detroit. Um, the network that we had out there, they came across the article. The network in Detroit said, hey, did you guys hear about this store that's in your city that's considering closing? Me and my partner at the time said, no, we didn't, but thanks for putting it on our radar. And we rushed down that same day. They were closed. Um, So we tabled that ambition and that desire to just to be supportive and just let them know that we love who you guys are. We're late to the party, but we want to make sure the party stays available to us. As being younger generations, that's known that we've been miseducated, misinformed, and just have holes in what we believe is the truth in reality. We were finally able to connect with um, Miss Yvonne and that started the bridging of the gap between generations, blowing each other's minds, um, being (laughs) reminded of the value. 
All right, let's talk about those generations. You've got generational support, Yvonne. Uh, we've gotten a lot of support from the community. I mean, people have come here for years. They bring their children here. They bring their grandchildren here. You know, they said, I knew your father when he had the store on 60th Street. I knew your dad in Atlanta. Because at the time that my father died, he actually branched off and had another store in Atlanta near Clark University. But unfortunately, I had to close that store after he passed because I could barely handle this one, let alone two. And we've gotten enormous support from the Enterprise Center uh, at 46 and Market. They have uh, really been behind us. They were instrumental in getting us recognition by ESPN. We were part of the ESPN Supports Black Businesses. We were the only business chosen from Philadelphia. Uh, and that was about two years ago. They had a project going on with the Wells Fargo Bank. They did a lot of work out here with our storefronts and whatnot. And all of that was wonderful. And then there's always a wrench thrown into things. We had a fire here in February which destroyed almost all of that work that was done. And so we're in a rebuilding process. We had to get the store back together and we're still working on that. How can people help you? Come in and buy books. Come in and buy books, you know, stop in and say hi. Just give us the encouragement and let us know that we're necessary to the community. I mean, if you walk up and down 52nd Street, there are very few places of education or places like our store to go and get knowledge, to educate children. And, you know, I'm a big supporter of educating children. We expanded our children's section, as you see all these children's books here, because it bothered me that African-American children didn't have any books with people in them that looked like them or told their stories. And that's why your father did this. This is why your family carries on the legacy. To make sure the next generation knows their history and knows where they come from. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. The Philly Rising Changemaker is sponsored by Penn Medicine Heart and Vascular Center, performing the most advanced heart procedures in the region. Hey, what up? It's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. She started a career as a teacher in Philadelphia public schools, and her passion for books, writing, and more representation of Black Muslim families like her own has taken her on a journey to becoming a best-selling author. She'll be traveling around the country to different schools, talking about some of her recent work. But before that, she took time out to chat with Bridging Philly. When Jamila Tompkins Bigelow gave birth to her sons, it also sparked a fire inside of her to start building the world that she wanted to see for them as a minority Black Muslim mother. I started in about 2014. This was when I had just had a baby. And I also had a four-year-old and um, I was wanting to uh, write more children's books that um, had families like their own, um, you know, that kind of represented their community more. And I also just wanted a creative outlet at the time. So I was looking for different forms of writing. Several children's books later, the former Philadelphia teacher is now a best-selling author. Her work is appreciated locally in bookshops like Uncle Bobby's in her Germantown neighborhood. They've also made it into homes, classrooms, and even school curriculums across the country. It's really powerful to me how teachers um, and librarians and educators have really taken this book on and decided that, you know, like this is a Read Across America book um, and, um, you know, different um, school districts across the nation have kind of like, you know, made this part of their standardized curriculum. Um, Your name is a song. And this was a wild idea that I had about, you know, just what if we had like a book that just, you know, basically celebrated the musicality of all of these different names that often get, you know, mispronounced, right? All of these different kinds of cultural, ethnic names, you know, from around the world. And um, 
for it to just have taken off the way that it did um, and the way that it continues to, it's really powerful to me. While the author is experiencing a lot of success and notoriety, along with that, she has also seen some pushback. That's kind of how I even got my in, right, was that, you know, people were looking for this kind of work and very interested in it. And then now we're in this phase where now this work is being shut down in very active ways. You know, I've had a few of my books on banned lists um, for certain school districts throughout the country. There are just like all these different laws, you know, Florida, you know, they're banning books, they're banning curriculum, they're banning. Some teachers cannot even curate their own classrooms. And it's rising to the level, I think, where it's a, a serious social justice issue where people actually have to rise up and do something about it because it's really kind of scary. Part of what keeps her motivated, she says, is that for every disgruntled vocal parent speaking out against her children's books, there are countless families positively impacted by the representation they bring. I think because I represent Black Muslims and we are not very, um, you know, widely in the books, it's very special to someone who is, you know, African-American, who's Muslim, to see that representation in a book. And I have seen people show me how special that is to them, how meaningful that is to them in ways that have, like make me cry. Right. So I know of a family that wrote to me um, that they put uh, one of my books, Mommy's Kimara, on the mantle when it came out. That was my first one because they felt like this was their family and they had never seen their family quite like this. And from down to the, you know, their grandmother in the story was is a Christian, you know, which is very typical of a lot of African-American Muslim families. So this is our family, like in a book. It was so emotional to them that they had it on their mantle. To follow along with Jamila Tompkins Bigelow, you can check out her website, Jamila the Writer, or find her on Instagram at author Jamila. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you know who we should highlight for next week's show, please reach out. You can call the station or find me on Twitter at ARLeonAir. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>